TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Fire and Forest Ecology in the American West. Chad Hansen and Monica Bond. A meeting of the Wild Earth Guardians with the John Muir Project and the Wild Nature Institute. On June 5, 2021, the wildlife biologist, Dr. Monica Bond, and fire ecologist Dr. Chad Hansen were speaking with an international audience at a webinar hosted by the Wild Earth Guardians. In a year of catastrophic fires, not just in the U.S., they discussed what to do, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do for these burned ecosystems to recover. Here's John Horning, Executive Director of the Wild Earth Guardians. Today we'll be talking about fire and forest ecology in the American West. With me today to discuss these matters are Monica Bond. Monica's a wildlife biologist and biodiversity advocate with the Wild Nature Institute. She's also a research associate with the University of Zurich. She's published more than 45 peer-reviewed scientific journal articles and book chapters. And she spent the last two decades studying spotted owls. Uh, she served on the Dry Forest Landscapes Working Group for the Northern Spotted Owl Recovery Plan. Travels around the world, lucky you, Monica, researching and advocating for the conservation of imperiled wildlife and their habitats. So welcome to you, Monica. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and then also joining us is Chad Hansen. He's a research ecologist and director of the John Muir Project of Earth Island Institute, located in Big Bear City, California. Dr. Hansen has a PhD in ecology with a research focus on fire ecology. He just published a book, congratulations. It's entitled Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to save our forests and our climate. He's also a co-author and co-editor of a 2015 book about fire and it's entitled, The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires, Nature's Phoenix. Great to have you, Chad. Thank you, great to be here. Yeah. I wanted to start by asking each of you how you come to this work. Why don't you start first, Monica? What's your journey to, to these issues? I remember my first hike in a burned forest was in eastern Oregon back in the sort of early, mid-1990s. And that was the first time I had really, really saw what a burned forest was all about. And I, I was just blown away by the life that was thriving there and actually quite surprised because I, I hadn't known that, um, that there was so much life in a burned forest. And then a little after that, um, Congress passed the salvage rider. Maybe some of you remember that, um, where there was sort of expedited, we called it lawless logging. Um, it expedited logging and, of dead trees, basically. You know, you could salvage log those trees without having to follow the usual environmental regulations. And, um, you know, people were up in arms about that. And so I, you know, wrote letters against that, um, did a little bit of activism. But then I would say that it, it really became personal to me after I'd been studying spotted owls in the central Sierra Nevada, a little west of, of Lake Tahoe, I was studying spotted owls there for three years. And a fire burned through the study area. 
And then um, as there wants to do, the Forest Service immediately proposed salvage logging, cutting the trees in that area. And back then, uh, this was in 2001, the star fire burned. And back then, and Chad, you remember this because we worked on this together, the Forest Service would propose to salvage log or to, to log every tree that even if it was alive and just a little bit burned, you know, even just if it was in a low severity area, if it just had a little fire scar, it was marked for cut. And so Chad and I kind of drove, were driving around the area and we, we talked to a logger. And I remember this conversation that he said, I understand you guys want to protect the trees that you know, are still alive and green, but what, what about these dead trees? What, what do they matter? And that sort of started me anyway on, that, on the journey of trying to advocate for like, what does it matter if you have these huge burned areas? What are we trying to save when we save these forests? And in, in fighting that salvage logging sale, I learned that there really was not very much information about how spotted owls, so I was, I was working as an expert on spotted owls. There wasn't a lot known about how spotted owls use these burned areas. We knew that they could actually uh, continue living in areas that had experienced fire, but we didn't know how they used different burn severities. So that got me thinking that I'd like to do that kind of research. So I did some research on a big fire in Southern California and found that they actually really liked to forage in the high severity burn forest. And that was really groundbreaking at the time, got me excited. And then I kind of continued on with my spotted owl research till then. And actually, um, a few years after I did that, I started working on blackback woodpeckers. And I will put a pin in that because I think we're going to talk more about blackback woodpeckers. But then that really got me like into super, you know, pyrophilic animals. And, and uh, we'll talk about the blackback woodpecker because it's a really, really um, fire loving animal. But that's sort of my journey into, into this work and, and advocating for uh, protecting burn forests because they're so ecologically valuable. Chad, what about you? What's your, what's your journey to being someone who embraces and celebrates fire? I got involved in, in forest protection in general uh, by uh, uh, hiking the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada with my older brother back in 1989. And um, I saw the the logging and devastation from logging and clear cutting on public lands uh, from the northern Sierra Nevada all the way up to Canada. And uh, so I decided that that was what I was going to do with my life and, and get involved. And I'd been working on the issue for over a decade. And, uh, and then I met Monica. And, uh, and that same trip that she described was also foundational for me, uh, where uh, the logging crew, you know, asked us, you know, the, the foreman of the logging crew asked us, well, you know, what does it matter if we cut down this area of, 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 of fire killed trees, you know, it's been destroyed by fire, you know, what, what harm could it possibly cause what species, you know, will be harmed by this, you know, so I thought that was really interesting, Monica and I both, you know, really kind of um, started focusing a lot on, on, the, on the research on this, because not many scientists had even asked that question until that time. I thought it was a really interesting question. You know, at that time, our whole goal was to stop the Forest Service from logging uh, live old growth trees that were very lightly scorched, that uh, they were calling dead and dying, kind of with a wink and a nod. And so Monica and I spent many, many long hours and days documenting these stands where the Forest Service said that there was no green foliage and you know, all the trees had been killed and they were really just you know, barely, barely scorched. And, uh, and they were occupied by spotted owls. But we weren't really thinking about the areas that really had been uh, intensely burned, where most or all the trees really had been killed. It wasn't even a thought in our mind, honestly. We were just trying to save the live big old green trees. But it, it occurred to us both after that, that outing that, um, that we were missing something. Amazing. Just uh, to hear both your stories and the 
the personal journey and the the time spent in the woods is is clearly a thread that that ties your journeys to understanding fire in the cultural and, and political context for it. Um, before we get to talking about the joy and celebrating fire for all its ecological good, just a little bit about the historical context for fire. And I wonder if each of you could touch briefly on the way in which the agencies, whether they're state or federal, how they relate to fire and how that has come to be a little bit of historical context. You want to go first, Chad? Sure. Well, the agencies like the U.S. Forest Service, for example, um, their goal for over a century was to eliminate wildfire from the forest. You know, nowadays it's a little more subtle than that, uh, at least in terms of their messaging. But for many decades, their explicit goal was to completely eliminate wildfire from forest ecosystems. Um, they didn't even understand, many of them, that fire was natural, that it had an evolutionary history. Um, a lot of them scoffed at the notion that lightning causes fires because they'd never actually seen it happen in front of their eyes. So, you know, that was the kind of the state of, of, uh, of knowledge or belief back at that time. And of course, they couldn't stop wildfires from burning in our forests. You know, they go back uh, 350 million years in evolutionary history, fire in, in the forests of this planet. And so, you know, more recently, uh, it, it's been it's been a focus on trying to force homogenous, low intensity fire on these ecosystems. Whereas in reality, uh, these forests are all mixed intensity fire uh, uh, regimes. You know, there's differences in terms of the proportion of that mix, certainly from ecosystem to ecosystem. But they all have some mix, and there's a deep evolutionary history of that. So, uh, but really, it comes down to money. The Forest Service, uh, you know, didn't like the idea of fire killing trees in areas where they had not yet punched logging roads in uh, and where they didn't have the time to do that before the trees decayed and were no longer usable for lumber. So uh, it was really about economics and politics. And frankly, today it still is. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And also, you know, as protections for old growth forests grew and were established, it really sort of shifted to the, the main areas that they would log would be in these post-fire areas. And they became some of the biggest timber sales, you know, at the time then once they, once the forest service, it became less popular to, to cut these old growth forests. So they shifted to logging burn forests and it, now it's, it is a huge economic incentive for them to continue to vilify fire and burn forests. And of course, you know, I'm sure everybody on this call has heard of Smokey Bear and knows how incredibly effective that message has been. And every child in America hears of Smokey Bear. So it's been a very powerful, pervasive message. But um, what we're going to learn today on our journey about learning about the, the beauty and, and naturalness and importance of burn forests is that Smokey needs a new message. I actually think Smokey's a good pivot point because for us to talk about some of the species that benefit from fire, as opposed to this this public view that uh, that's been perpetrated by the agency with the smoky myth that all fires are are traumatic for wildlife. You know, both of you know um, the University of Montana forest ecologist Dick Hutto, and I was sharing that I had read the the story of an article entitled "Old Flames: The Tangled History of Forest Fires." wildlife and people in which he celebrates the role of these intense fires. And what I thought was really interesting about it is juxtaposing the agency narrative in which 
air pollution was horrible, evacuation orders. And yet, as he walked through the fire, he said, you couldn't ask for a better fire. What are your thoughts on that particular fire and, and, and Dick Hutto's um, reference to this fire not being traumatic, but actually being incredibly beneficial? Yeah, Dick Hutto, he, I, I think of him as sort of the godfather of this movement to protect these, these snag forests. He has such a wonderful way with words and everything he says is backed up with science. So yeah, when he says you couldn't ask for a better fire and he's in an area which is, you know, you look all around you and it's all uh, blackened trees, it's because at that moment he's hearing blackback woodpeckers, American three-toed woodpeckers, hairy woodpeckers, bluebirds, uh, house wrens, I mean, just countless birds that absolutely thrive in the most severely burned forests. And he, he calls them magical. And I think that's absolutely right. I like to think of them as an ecological treasure trove because it's sort of like a treasure that you know you didn't know and you open it up and there you are and you're just blown away by the incredible life that's thriving in these areas. And, and for me personally, when I need to become rejuvenated after I'm sort of feeling depressed about things, I go up and I go camping in a burned forest. It just reminds me again of, of this, you know, this, this struggle is right, that we need to protect these places that um, there are so many, I mean, Dick Hutto says that almost all bird species in American forests in the West benefit from severe fire at some point in time. So, you know, you don't just go there and look a year or two after, but five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, as the forest regenerates over all that time, different bird species use the forest at different times and, you know, different vegetation types. So it's, it's incredibly beneficial. And it's not just birds. There's uh, bats small mammals, deer, so many other kinds of animals that really do well, wildflowers that don't even bloom until there's a severe fire. So it really is a magical, magical forest. And I recommend folks go out and see it for yourself, grab a pair of binoculars after a fire, uh, you know, a year or two, the spring after fire is always very good. See for yourself. It's beautiful. I love, I love um, that you bring joy to our relationship to fire. I think it's so critical in not only talking about the science, the science is obviously decisions need to be informed by science, but I think one of the challenges in this issue is that our primary relationship to fire as humans is, is fear. Yeah. And so yeah. to bring joy to the experience of a burned landscape is so counter to the narrative that we're taught um, and, and that we experience. Let's face it, fires can be scary. Um, what about you, Chad? What's your kind of ecological epiphany about fire and forests and, and, and joy? Yeah, I feel the same way as Monica, and she said it very well, but you know, I, I do the same thing. You know, when I, uh, my, a good day for me, my best days are, are days in the field, um, hiking in, in the snag forest, um, these, these mature forests that have burned at high intensity where fire is, has killed most or all the trees. You know, obviously, if they have not been subjected to post-fire logging and you see all the natural regeneration, all the wildlife and the snags and the, the regrowing forest and the shrubs and the wildflowers. It's really quite amazing. And um, it's just, it's rich, it's colorful. You have so many flying insects and um, natural regeneration of the forest. 
Uh, you know, for me, what it's done is it, it's just made me rethink the idea that we've heard so much about, you know, good fire and bad fire. You know, we hear that narrative a lot. You know, okay, well, that was a good fire. And, and what people mean by that typically, especially the land management agencies, is uh, it was a fire that burned overwhelmingly at low intensity, and there was almost no high intensity fire. Um, that's actually very rare, but you know you'll 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 see fires like that sometimes, or they'll do a prescribed burn and they'll say, well, that's a good fire because mm -hmm. there was only low intensity fire. And I think what Dick Hutto and his you know speaking to in his research is, uh, and also the work that Monica and, and I and 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 many of our our colleagues have done, is that um, is that we need to rethink what a good fire is. You know, uh, big fires that have a mix of low, moderate, and high intensity. That's a good fire. Um, because we have a deficit of fire in our forests relative to the levels that occurred uh, prior to fire suppression for many thousands of years. For example, um, there was a, a you know, there's, we see this again and again in big fires. We see biodiversity typically go up um, if these areas are not post-fire logged. Uh, Monica mentioned uh, spotted owls. You know, so one of the examples I talk about in my book, Smokescreen, is the Horseshoe 2 fire that burned, I believe that was 2011 in southern Arizona. And uh, there, there was a lot of Mexican spotted owl territories in that fire. It was a 223,000 acre fire, big one. And um, it had a mix of low, moderate, and high intensity, significant amount of high intensity fire, uh, but mostly low, moderate, which is natural, but significant high intensity. And people thought, well, this is, this is really worrisome. We're gonna lose a lot of Mexican spotted owls. But the thing is, it was mostly in protected forests. So there was no post-fire logging. Within three years after that fire, Mexican spotted owl populations had doubled. And the reason was, is that the snag forest habitat created by those patches of high intensity fire uh, is incredibly good habitat for the small mammals that the spotted owl preys upon. And so the snag forests have small mammal prey biomass that's two to six times higher than the unburned old forests. So the spotted owls are nesting and roosting in the lightly burned areas that are still mostly big old live trees, because they like that for nesting and roosting. But they're flying over ridges and over valleys to get to that snag forest habitat because that's where they're getting a lot of their food. And Monica and I call that the bed and breakfast effect. Yes. <laughs> Love that. Exactly. And if I can just jump in again. Um, so another great quote from Dick Hutto is that plants and animals talk. All we need to do is listen. And what he's saying is that if we just watch them and we study them and we understand, you know, how they use their habitat, how they respond to fire in these different ways, they're telling us about their long evolutionary history with fire. And if there are so many species that do really well and not only just kind of tolerate fire, but actually some of them require it. For example, I'm going to start with like the original, the original pyrophile, which is the longhorn beetles. Okay, so these there's a couple different kinds and they have special sensory organs that can either sense smoke or heat. And they're the first ones to get to a fire. And they, they basically, um, they lay their eggs, they, they, they land on the dead trees that are freshly, freshly dead. So the trees still have sapwood inside them that is food for their larvae, but the trees are dead so they can't pitch the, the beetles out. So the beetles lay their eggs, on the trees, the, the eggs hatch, the larvae bury in there, and then they are big, fat, like inch-long larvae. And they're in there for a couple of years, you have larvae inside these trees, and that's what draws the woodpeckers, especially the blackback woodpeckers. So you, you know, they're the, the first pyrophile is, are those beetles that are like sensing smoke and fire, and okay, this is our habitat, this is what we need. 
They get there, the black back uh, woodpeckers come forage for years on these amazing, like, like they're like little steaks or, uh, you know, tofu if you're a vegetarian, but like something delicious for them. And there's a super abundance of, of these, this larva in all these trees. And that's what draws in all these woodpeckers. Woodpeckers are creating holes, cavity nests. So they're not only eating the super abundance of larvae, but they're also making holes, um, cavity nests all over the forest. And then you have secondary cavity nesters that can't make their own like bluebirds and house wrens. And so that's primo real estate for those birds to be able to use the woodpecker holes after they're done. So you have a proliferation of these species doing really well. You have uh, flowers and shrubs coming back and it's bringing in all these insects. So you have these aerial insectivore birds and bats that are in there and it's just bursting with life. And so again, you know, these plants and animals are telling us something. They do great. They, some of them need and require this kind of habitat. That tells us that these big burned patches are completely natural in the forest. They're as natural in our forest as the rain or the snow. I love hearing the story of, of ecological pioneers. Just because all ecosystems have the pioneering, they're these successional stages, so it's, it's great. The fire restores that habitat for them. It's not like we have to restore the forest because it burned. It's like the fire actually was the restorative agent for these species. Yeah. I want to return to something that, that you touched on, Chad, about good and bad fires. And I've been thinking a bunch about anytime you, you read in the media these days, and I get irked with the media about this, they use the words catastrophic and disastrous to describe fire behavior. I'm curious to hear, you know, with the exception of loss of life and structures, which are obviously tragic, is there ever a time when those words like catastrophic or disastrous are appropriate to describe fire behavior? That's a great question. And I talk about this a lot in, in the smokescreen book, you know, where, where we have a deficit of fire, which is in our forests, uh, both in the Western US and the Eastern US and almost every forest in the world that has a natural fire regime. Most forests have a deficit of fire. There are some exceptions uh, globally. And so basically in forests, when we have fires, even big fires, because we know we've always had big fires, there's, there's lots of evidence of that. We had fires historically that were hundreds of thousands of acres in size, millions of acres in size. That's natural too. And so when, when that occurs, it's a restorative event because we need more of it. Um, if we had too much fire in our forests, then you could start talking about ecological impacts that were adverse. And let me just give an example. Um, Foothill Chaparral in Southern California, um, the kind of shrub ecosystems that are below the forest in elevation, they actually have too much fire. And mostly it's because of human ignitions, uh, because they're close to large population centers. And you just have a lot of people in fire season you know, doing dumb things that cause accidental um, ignitions. So those, those ecosystems have too much fire. And oftentimes what ha what's happening is they burn again before they can mature and reproduce. And so it's causing conversion uh, into uh, from chaparral into grasslands in some cases. So we don't want more fire there. We actually do want less and we wanna curb and stop those unplanned human ignitions. And so there, you know, you could, I wouldn't use the word catastrophic because I just try to get away from, you know, kind of value-laden words, but I would say it's a negative effect there because even though fire's natural in chaparral, we actually do have too much. In our forests, it's the opposite. Um, and let me just give one example of a, of a circumstance where it's been widely reported as a catastrophic thing. We had a, a big fire last year uh, in numerous uh, giant sequoia groves in the southern Sierra Nevada on Sequoia National Forest called the Castle Fire about 183,000 acres. 
burned through numerous groves. Most of them had not burned in a very long time, in many cases over a century. And, um, and people said, oh my gosh, that's a catastrophe. And there was a recent uh, news story released saying that uh, about 10% of the mature giant sequoias um, had been killed in the fire. Uh, and, and, and people are saying that, you know, again, cat catastrophe. Well, a couple of things to know there. Uh, first of all, uh, the estimate of 10% mortality is based on satellite imagery. And the folks who put that imagery, that, that estimate together have not visited the groves <laughs> and uh, are not aware of the fact that giant sequoias produce new green foliage from surviving terminal buds more than any other conifer on the planet. And so uh, even when they look dead, they're not. They'll just produce new foliage the next year. Some will be killed in the fire, but it's most likely much less than what they estimated. But the thing is, is that for giant sequoias to effectively reproduce, you have to have fire of moderate and high intensity. They don't really reproduce very well in low intensity fire. They're serotonous. Their cones need that heat to release the seeds. You need the heat to consume the thick duff and litter on the forest floor and basically create a, a nutrient rich bed of mineral ash to allow germination. And so in other words, for millions and millions of years, unless you have a fire that's intense enough to kill at least some giant sequoias, it's not intense enough to perpetuate the species and allow reproduction. It's a cycle of life in a giant sequoia forest ecosystem. And uh, you know, one giant sequoia snag is like an ecosystem unto itself for dozens of cavity nesting species every single year for centuries. So I look at the castle fire and I say, it's the best thing to happen to those groves uh, in, in over a century. But I just love the concept of serotony. Um, it's a beautiful word as well. I wonder if Monica, you could just for a half a minute add your voice to, to that concept because it speaks to the essential role of, of intense fires. Yeah, again, I mean, these serotonous cones of these conifers wouldn't exist if it wasn't for a very, very long millions of year history with high severity fire. That was a conversation with Monica Bond, PhD. She's a wildlife biologist with the Wild Nature Institute. They conduct scientific research on endangered wildlife. Chad Hansen is co-founder of the John Muir Project of Earth Island Institute. His PhD is in ecology with a research focus on fire. His most recent book is Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Hansen and Bond spoke to the Wild Earth Guardians in June 2021. With offices in seven western states, the Wild Earth Guardians are restoring wild places and rivers. Three months after this conversation in September 2021, the John Muir Project and the Center of Sustainable Economy published a footnoted study with an urgent warning. They said, Logging provisions in infrastructure and budget reconciliation packages would worsen the climate crisis. Both the infrastructure bill and budget reconciliation contain over $2 billion in subsidies for logging, coupled with a mandate to log 10 million acres over the next six years, with another 20 million acres to follow, and the promotion of logging in naturally recovering fire areas. 
this at a time where we urgently need standing forests to help sequester carbon emissions. And for your reference, this continuity is being recorded on October 19, 2021. For links to documents on this issue, go to tucradio.org or search for the John Muir Project. For the full one-hour version of this conversation, go to Wild Earth Guardians or search YouTube for Fire and Forest Ecology in the American West. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, T. UCRadio.org, look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.